Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week is a little bit different of an episode. Uh, Matt Larkin, who has been on this podcast a couple times before, returns again. Uh, This time we recap the eight-episode series on Hulu called The Bear. Most of you who probably listen to this podcast have heard of that TV show uh, that just kind of came out earlier this year. I think it was maybe around May or something like that. But there's eight episodes or about a half hour in length. And essentially the premise is this guy returns to Chicago after his brother died, take over his restaurant, and it deals with all the different aspects of running a restaurant. You know, it's kind of a casual restaurant. They do lunch and dinner. And they kind of break down different interactions of different characters and how different positions in the kitchen work with each other and difficulties and challenges of managing people and all that stuff. So a lot of stuff that we kind of cover in our guest interviews that we have, they kind of touch on sporadically. And they also amp things up to, you know, a 10 or 11, uh, especially with one of the final episodes. So if you haven't seen the series and you're trying to avoid spoilers because it's something you're going to get to or whatever, I would stop listening now. Uh, we cover the all eight episodes. So uh, it has been renewed for a season two, uh, which probably will debut sometime around the same time next year, I would imagine, which is good because it's it's tough with TV shows, sometimes you watch something, you really like something, and then you find out it was canceled for whatever reason, production company changed or distribution or whatever. So there's a lot of nuance with that stuff. There hasn't really been too, too much like food media in terms of dramatization or scripted television. You know, obviously the big uh, thing is Burnt, which we kind of touch on, which is a movie with Bradley Cooper from a handful of years ago. There's been a couple things here or there. Sweet Bitter, which was on Stars for two seasons, was based off a book that was written and that was okay at times. It hasn't really been too much, you know, scripted television. A couple of movies here or there. Uh, obviously a lot of documentaries. You have your chef's tables. You have all the stuff on Hulu. There's stuff with David Chang and... Uh, uh, Padme, who's the host of Top Chef and obviously Top Chef and stuff like that too. So it was a nice change of pace to watch something that was in kind of the hospitality industry, but it wasn't reality TV or a, a docu-series or something like that. Matt had the idea of kind of recapping it. I think there were a lot of think pieces and stuff like that that came out right after it aired. There's been a lot of chefs I've seen that have watched it. There's a lot of chefs that refuse to watch it and kind of misunderstand maybe the point of the show too as well. I've seen a couple of people, you know, post stuff on Instagram like that. So, you know, we kind of break it down and just kind of recap it and hopefully, you know, pick up a a few things that maybe you didn't notice if you did watch it or forgot about or something like that. So it was a lot of fun. You know, it's always good to chat with Matt. You know, he's out in New York working for Tiny Spoon Chef. So you can find him there on Instagram, either at, you know, Tiny Spoon Chef, which is kind of the overall account or his individual account, uh, Pork Stories. A lot of it is uh, him going to the awesome farmer's markets that they have around New York City uh, and getting ingredients and stuff and trying different foods that he finds kind of in those areas too as well. So it's always, you know, fun to chat with Matt. You know, we have a a pretty similar kind of way we approach food media, I think. Um, It was kind of a natural fit and Matt's worked all over, you know, different countries and stuff like that, different styles of restaurants. So it felt like he was a really good person to have on to give their perspective of actually being in the kitchen and how those things actually kind of line up to the real world application of those. So he kind of touches on all that stuff too as well. So you can follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Make sure to check out the website, SpoonMob.com and follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. But we'll have a new interview next week, but we just kind of wanted to change it up and do something fun and uh, a little bit more kind of maybe casual, I guess, or just, you know, a little different style of an episode for you guys. So uh, without any further delay, here's our recap of The Bear, which is currently streaming on Hulu.
Cool. So a little bit different episode we're going to do here. Matt, you reached out to me uh, wanting to have a conversation about the bear. So if anybody who's listening to this, if you have not watched the bear or watched it in its entirety, spoilers ahead, I guess. I think a lot of people have watched it, though. I have seen some think pieces about it from people that maybe shouldn't be the ones writing think pieces about it. I've seen a couple of those. I've seen a lot of different uh, people post on Instagram and stuff like that. Either they have watched it or I've even seen some people say they refuse to watch it, which I thought was a little odd too as well. So it's been kind of all over the place, kind of the reactions, but it, it does seem to have made its way into at least the restaurant community or the food and hospitality community pretty effectively, which is, you know, there's not a whole lot of food media out there really um, in terms of like TV you know there's a handful of travel shows you know I think somebody feed Phil still had a new season come out but you know you have your top chefs you have a couple other little travel docu series things there's a movie with I think uh, Stephen Graham called Boiling Point that came out I still have not seen that yet but uh, that looks relatively interesting but otherwise like there's just not a whole lot of of food media out there. So just for a quick recap of anybody, you know, The Bear, it's on Hulu. It's set in Chicago. It stars uh, Jeremy Allen White, who is, if you've ever seen Shameless, he was played the character Lip. It kind of feels like this is a, a second act for his character, almost like an epilogue. Like you can envision in a roundabout way, if you saw the end of the Shameless series, that he basically got his shit together and went to culinary school and then is now taking over a restaurant. Like he's basically the same character. There is kind of like a nice flow, um, a roundabout way that doesn't have anything to do with either of the series, but you can connect the two in your head if you really wanted to. Oliver Platt is in it. Uh, he's the other big name. And then John Berthnall. And everybody else is kind of one off, maybe done some acting here or there, but nobody like big name, recognizable face or anything really in this series. And it's about just his brother committed suicide and he comes back to take over the restaurant, which is kind of having financial problems and doesn't really have a direction. It's kind of like a locally owned dive restaurant in a way. It's like eight episodes and it follows kind of through, you know, him kind of running the restaurant. So that's kind of the synopsis of it. But, you know, you're in the restaurant industry. What were, you know, kind of your initial reactions to, to watching it? Flashbacks, good, bad, I had to pace it out. Uh, I couldn't really like dive into it and watch the whole thing in one sitting. It was definitely uh, a little bit trauma inducing at points, but that's what I really loved about the the series. But I, th- I thought it was a really well done piece of scripted television that it really felt like being in a kitchen. So for good and for bad, um, it reminded me a lot of the things that I missed. Like it definitely made me miss being in a restaurant kitchen with my friends on the line. Um, but it also reminded me of a lot of the bad things of why I left and wasn't the the most healthy situation to be in all the time. And I think that was kind of the the response I got from a lot of my chef friends as well as the people that have left the industry or have transitioned into different jobs. They really enjoyed it to kind of like go back and revisit those feelings. But a lot of my friends that are still in kitchens every day on the line, 70 hours a week, it was uh, a bit too real for them that they didn't need to to see that in their off time. Yeah, I don't know too much about the production aspect of it. I know it's a real restaurant in Chicago, and I know they had some culinary consultants because apparently you can get the chocolate cake that they make. Uh, there was like an article in like the Chicago Eater. You can actually get that. It's like $7.50, and it's from um, baker Sarah Miss Pagel of Sepia and Proxy. She, I guess, was a consultant so that she kind of created the – and you can actually – 
get it at a place called Loaf Lounge. It's only like $7.50. So if you're in Chicago and you want to try that cake, but Christopher Storer, he definitely knows how to shoot a kitchen. Well, I think he, he had done a, a documentary with Thomas Keller back at the French Laundry, maybe 10 years ago. So you could tell he has experience being in a kitchen that it wasn't a set. It was like, it felt like you were in a, I saw like a lot of the reviews had the words like claustrophobic, tense, tight, uncomfortable. Like it definitely felt like you were stuck on the line with a, a bunch of people in a small room. So they, I thought they did a really good job of shooting that. And like you mentioned earlier, like there's not a ton of great food media, especially in terms of scripted television. Like most scripted kitchen shows, you can tell that they're on a set, not actually in a kitchen. The The movements don't feel right. Whereas like, I think a lot of the stuff that like David Gelb does with all of his chef's table and um, street food shows, like those are shot very, very well. And I, that was kind of the feel that I got from the bear that it felt more like almost like a food documentary and not so much of a, a scripted like sitcom kind of show. Yeah. I think they did a really good job with shooting. Like you're saying how they kind of navigated the space using a real location, I think is definitely a big plus. It is a real restaurant. There were parts of it within the first couple episodes that are, it's a little tough to follow like the menu, for instance, I think it's, you don't realize until the second or maybe it's like the third episode, like they have two different menus for lunch and dinner because all they ever talk about, like in the first episode is I think keeping the spaghetti on the menu or whatever. So it's, it is kind of hard to figure out like what kind of food that they were actually putting out aside from sandwiches. But then there's also apparently spaghetti on the menu and you're like, wait a minute, like that doesn't quite make sense. Like what's going on. And then once they kind of get a little bit more into the season, you know, they kind of have different dishes that they're playing with and different stuff and they're revamping things and, and whatnot. And then it kind of makes a little bit more sense. But yeah, they could have done, I think, probably maybe a little bit better in the initial episodes. And it's tough. It's a pilot. You're shooting it because you're trying to get it approved so you can actually get the whole series run and everything. So there's certain stuff that you can't or have to cut out or whatever. But just kind of establishing, I guess, the restaurant. But I mean, part of it was it didn't really have a direction. It had a direction and then that obviously wasn't going well. And then, you know, his brother commits suicide. And then it's like, well, what is this direction? Because clearly that wasn't working before with all the financials and stuff that they kind of touch on too. So it'll be interesting to kind of see where they go with it. Yeah, I'm definitely excited for season two. I think it's a, it's going to be a very wide open. There's a lot of potential there for the next season, which they have renewed it, which is great. I'm looking forward to that coming back. Yeah, which was something that I encounter a lot with any new TV show that comes out. It's how interested are you in watching it? Because there's a lot of TV shows that come out and then the production company changes or whatever. And then it gets canceled after one season. And so it's like, well, what's kind of the point? Like why I'm investing time, but these are, you know, 30 minute episodes, which makes it a lot easier to consume too, as well. They're not hour long episodes. There's not a ton of filler. They don't really drag, you know, in any spots. I didn't think really. Yeah. I thought the pacing was great. It was, I was never bored in any of the episodes. They get through a lot without doing too much. I thought it was like very well framed. I didn't quite understand why they dumped all eight episodes were available at the same time, like the Netflix model, because that model has been proven to not really work the best for TV shows because usually all the episodes come out, everybody kind of watched it within the first two weeks. And then maybe like third week, there's kind of, it's still in the, you know, popular lexicon or whatever. And then it kind of fades off into oblivion and everybody forgets about it. So, but I don't know if that was a choice because they partnered with FX and the production company that they had to put it all out or they wanted to and thought that'd be the best model for it. Or they worried that they weren't going to get ratings anyways. And they just, they threw content out there. I'm not sure. I didn't really see anything about that um, in kind of initial, you know, reading and stuff that I did. 
Yeah, I would be very curious to see how they roll out the second season just based on the the feedback they got from the first season. I don't think anyone thought it would be as popular as it was. So, And there's other shows that Hulu does with FX like, and they roll out like two episodes at a time. And I think that's a better model. Give us two episodes a week for a month. Yeah, that's definitely the way I prefer to watch. Uh, especially if they're half hour episodes. I think that's probably the best model for like a half hour show. But But yeah, I think, you know, after watching it too as well for me, they touch on a lot of different aspects without going too deep into one thing. You know, they talk about the financials and paying your purveyors and also how hard it is to find staff, you know, when they have the the woman on the line and she's, you know, throwing away prep and, and stuff like that. And the whole time you're like, just fire her. But it's like, well, you're in Chicago. Like, who else are you going to find for, for nine bucks an hour? You know, who, who's going to work here? You know, and they have to kind of, and they do a good job of flushing that out because I mean, you know, podcasts that we had come out today, Justin, who you used to work with, you know, he talked about his experience where people would be stealing prep and, and dumping yeah. <laughs> prep on you and stuff like that. And so it was an interesting tie in where that stuff happens and it's not even, doesn't have to be a Michelin star kitchen. It, it can just be the person's 10 years younger than you and is now in charge of you kind of thing. And it's navigating that. Did you ever encounter anything like that? Oh yeah, that's uh that's definitely been a, a tough one, especially like a lot of my earlier sous chef roles. I was in my mid to late twenties and trying to manage people that had been in the kitchen for 10, 15 years, really stuck in their ways. Definitely knew a lot more about the individual restaurant than I did. So that's always uh, I could definitely relate to Sydney in that respect in terms of like trying to come in and run a new system for people that aren't that interested in it. So that's uh that's an everyday battle for I think every kitchen I've ever been in. Somebody's always going to try and come in and change things to a new, more efficient system that nobody really wants. So <laughs> that's definitely very real to life. Yeah. And her character is really interesting too, as well, because they kind of slow play it and draw it out. But essentially she started her own business, her own kind of private catering thing, which so many people did during COVID kind of pivot to that. It just didn't work out. Like the financials just didn't work, you know, super talented, but it just, the business didn't make sense. And so now she's kind of just in no man's land, you know, like, well, rather than go work at some Michelin star kitchen or whatever, like, is there a place that I could go that, you know, I could actually integrate some of my ideas and, and be heard, not just from a, I didn't get the impression that it was just, you know, trying to shoehorn in a character that was a POC or anything. It was really about her just being like, I want to be heard in this industry. Like, just from a cook's point of view, a chef's point of view, more so than being a woman or being, you know, an African-American woman, you know, character too as well, I thought. So I thought they did a really good job with her. Yeah. And I really liked that, that framing of her character that you see a lot of, I think a lot of like young chefs in that position do go the, the Michelin star route. They're chasing stars. They want to work in fine dining kitchens and work in these big brigade systems. Um, and that's, really, really hard to work your way up. I'm sure Justin probably mentioned it. He worked for Jose Andres for so long and it's such a big system with so many chefs that there are so many people competing to be sous chefs, chef de cuisine, head chef. And for a person like Sydney, who is black and is a woman and is young, that's it's really, really hard to break through that. So I thought it was cool to see sort of a different path presented that um, the way they set up that mentor-mentee relationship in the very first, in the pilot. And she mentions that she came from Alinea and Avec and all these other fine dining establishments in Chicago, but she knew Carmi's resume and wanted to work for him. I thought that was a really cool framing because I think that's something that every chef looks for, that you can either go big name and work or like big corporate name, work for a big restaurant and kind of work your way up with those names on your resume, or you can find one chef to work under and kind of learn from that person. And I think that's something that is really, really hard to find in the industry, a, a good mentor like that. 
Yeah, and usually it seems like with the uh, the big name route, like you see it a lot with new restaurants that open, especially in certain markets. So like Chicago, it's like, you know, they're an alum of a linear group or whatever. And that gets, I think, people excited about going to eat there because they have something to associate. And it also probably helps that person get funding too as well. But it's like, yeah, but there's 40 people in that kitchen. That's the thing where you see it on, you know, like Top Chef, it'll be like, oh, this person was, you know, a sous chef in 11 Madison Park. And that's great. And you don't want to take anything away from that person, but it's like you're one of what, 15 sous chefs in a 70 person kitchen, something like that. So like, it's just hard to figure out like how integral you were in that kitchen in creating new menu items or or what kind of thing. So you kind of have to take some of that stuff when they come from a big restaurant group, like with a little bit of a grain of salt, you know? Yeah, I mean, maybe they were in 11 Madison Park Kitchen, but they might have just been peeling shallots for six months straight. So (laughs) it's always hard to judge. Did you have like a favorite episode out of the eight that they did? I I mean, obviously, episode seven, the the review, the one shot episode, I thought that was just so entertaining to watch. Like that was definitely the, the way they used the clock. It felt like. Like there was that anxiety that I would get before service on a, a busy Friday night when I know we were going to get busy, whether it was a, a good review or a write-up or like something happened on social media that we're getting swamped with reservations. Like that one felt very, very real. But I really, really enjoyed, um, I think it was episode five, the one where kind of everything just goes wrong. They're like trying to put out the new menu dishes and I think like the power goes out and the refrigerator goes down and Maddie Matthews' character has to come in and sort things out and thinks that might've been the episode where somebody spilled something. I thought that was just a really funny episode of like, I think everyone's worked in a kitchen where something's gone wrong. Like I've been on, I've been in kitchens where all the refrigeration goes down and we have to put ice on all the stations and there's it's leaking everywhere and you're just trying to get through the next few hours making sure everything stays just cold enough that the health inspector is not going to come in and write you guys up um yeah i thought that was a really fun episode and it showed a really good like dynamic between the line um i think there was one that's the episode where there's a scene where sydney is talking to sweeps the the porter and just like running through I need you to do this, this, and this before service. Like, this is great, but you got to do this too. Like the, the way everyone interacted in the episode, I thought was like really spot on. I had a fun time watching that one. I think it's episode seven was the best one when it's the online ordering goes haywire. You know, they, they didn't set it up right. They had all like 400 orders or whatever. And it's just stress and chaos and anxiety. Cause even my wife, you know, we were watching it and she's like, this is giving me anxiety. And I'm like, yeah, it's supposed to. (laughs) like it's supposed to be making you like super anxious and super like like on edge right now and that's what they were going for so i think they did a really good job they definitely dialed it up a bit and i had people ask me like is that really what it's like in a kitchen and i would say that was probably like five of my worst days all rolled into one but all those things have definitely happened to me before so it was uh it wasn't dramatized in that sense like those are all very real kitchen problems that i think every chef has been in the industry long enough has They've experienced a day like that at some point. Was there anything in the show that they didn't really touch on in the first season that you wish they did or maybe more so? 
No, I thought they like the attention to detail stuff I thought was really good. You could tell like a lot of the little touches, like just I know people are always talking about like the the chefs drinking out of quart containers, which is a real thing for a lot of different reasons. You can't have glass in the kitchen. All drinks have to have a lid on them. So that's if you're thirsty, you need some water, you, you grab a quart container and put a lid on it. That's something that happens pretty regularly. And I thought like a lot of the little touches, like I think it was also in episode seven where Carmi is shouting about the Sharpies. That's a... Uh, that's something I've seen many, many times for many chefs. That's a, a very real concern. And I really liked that they did a little bit outside of the restaurant. Um, there was the one offsite episode where they do the catering uh, for the kid's birthday party, which was another funny story. But one of my favorite scenes was in the last episode where Sydney and Marcus are in Sydney's apartment. And I thought that that was a really cool scene to see the the chef's lives outside of the restaurant. So maybe a little bit more of that. Like there was the episode where Tina brings her son in kind of getting more of the family life for a lot of the chefs, I think would be interesting to see. Um, but I think overall, like they, they managed to squeeze a lot into the the first eight episodes. I mean, it's only four hours long with the, the 30 minute episode. So yeah, I would love to see more of like the chef's lives outside the restaurant in the second season, but I think for the first season, they uh, did a great job. Yeah, I agree. I think after watching it, Kind of, I think it's maybe two or three episodes in before they actually reveal like who his brother is. Because like you're like, who are they going to get to play the brother? You're trying to figure out like who it is, and it winds up being John Berthnall, who's a great actor. He's been in a bunch of different Taylor Sheridan movies. You know, he's got a bit part in Sicario and, and Wind River, some other stuff. But he was just um, the lead in We Own the City, which if you haven't watched, is a it's a really good kind of six episode mini series about Baltimore's gun trace task force yeah i love david simon so definitely interested in that one but yeah it's like an epilogue to the wire almost it's really good i would highly recommend watching if anybody's out there and hasn't seen it it does a good job of framing the issues within a city municipality city government while a lot of it is about corruption in the police department at the very end they do tie it into like you know then they get this new mayor but the mayor doesn't do anything kind of thing too as well but yeah, so you find out he's, you know, the older brother who eventually commits suicide, you know, and they leave that open-ended because with suicide, it's usually you don't know why the person did it, you know, stuff like that. So they, they do a pretty good job of kind of accurately framing that. I wish that I don't know what his time commitments were or what, but it would have been cool to see the first season be him as the main character and going through kind of the pitfalls of running a restaurant. And then it kind of ends with him committing suicide. And then it picks up with like this being almost like the second season. I'm sure there's a way they could do that and have kind of a, a prequel season or bits and parts of episodes be kind of a prequel and flashbacks. But it would have been cool to have like that kind of ground floor set. You go into, you know, kind of the falling out relationship with his brother and his brother goes off to, you know, the CIA and culinary school or whatever. And it kind of ends with either his funeral or, or something like that. And then you kind of pick up in season two, but I'm sure that was probably, you know, probably too dark for a first season. Uh, it probably would have been. And uh, you know, who knows with birth and all's uh, time commitments, cause he's involved in a bunch of different projects. He might not have been able to do 60 day shoot or whatever it was um, for it. So, yeah. I mean, I like the way they sprinkled it in and kind of like teased it out and then you get the full story. I think it's the the very last episode they explain a bit more of the whole relationship between the two. And then that's when it, they never mentioned the bear, the name of the restaurant until the very end. And you hear like, okay, so that's going to be the restaurant in the second season. So yeah, like you said, the first entire season really wasn't about the new restaurant so much as it was about the old restaurant that uh, his brother was running. So yeah, I, would, I mean, definitely 
that was a very fascinating relationship between the two. And I loved his Carmi speech at uh, the AA meeting in episode eight, where he really dives into his motivation to become a chef and his relationship with his brother and how the restaurant kind of like is this whole symbol for the family relationship. So yeah, I thought they did a good job of tying that in. Yeah, I think the big question now is because the mother is still alive, but they never showed her. Yeah, she's not mentioned or like never really featured in any of the, it's mostly him and his sister. So yeah, I guess that would be because he never goes to see his mom or whatever. So I'm, yeah, because they mentioned his dad passes. I'm assuming that they're going to cast somebody to play the mother. And I'm sure that will probably be, you know, that would be kind of put in there too as well. But I thought the tomato can thing at the end was a little gimmicky. That was kind of weird. Yeah, I didn't fully comprehend that. I don't understand how he uh, sealed the tomato cans up. If you open them and put rolls of cash in there, like how did he buy like a, a canner? Like how did he do that? But yeah, and I never really saw it fully explained what the whole, what the brother's thought process was to just to borrow that money just to hide it. Was that like, I saw some reviews saying that was kind of always his plan was just to to get this money to give to Carmi. And that was the attic brain, I guess. That was the best way of doing it was to scroll this money away for his brother to eventually find and hand over the restaurant. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of like attic behavior where you're kind of stashing things away like a squirrel. But also, yeah, he kind of wanted to make things right with his brother and help him open a restaurant. And he kind of knew that his restaurant was failing regardless. So why... That, you know, because there's a, I think it's maybe the second or third episode where Carmi's, you know, doing some paperwork in the office and he's just like, I don't understand like where this 300 grand went and why he just didn't pay the suppliers. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. And that was obviously why. I guess I sort of see it as like a nice, easy way to tie up season one if it wasn't going to be renewed. Like there's this neat little bow at the end. So as like, as far as nitpicks go, that's my, my biggest concern, whatever that's a neat storytelling device, I guess, to to propel us into season two. So yeah, not not the end of the world for me. But yeah, I, th- I did think that was kind of weird. Like I wasn't sure how they were going to end the season. And then in the last five minutes, it just neatly wraps up and like, oh, surprise, here's a quarter of a million dollars now on to season two. So yeah, I kind of started piecing together that like something was going to happen with the money. But I just, the tomato can, I didn't really see coming just because it seemed just too on the nose. I thought it was going to be like as a check or a bank account or something that he finds somewhere in all the taxes. I did wonder because those, but those cans were like very prominently featured throughout the whole season. And I was always wondering, like, was this a product placement thing? Did that brand have a deal with the show? Like why? Because they're in the background of so many shots. And just for me, it didn't make any sense because I don't know why. And then I think Carmi brings it up too. Like, why are we ordering the small cans when we're opening up 10 at a time for a recipe? Like any sous chef will tell you right away, like, no, we can fix this ordering right now. So I always thought that was kind of weird. Like they must have had a plan for it at some point, And then it turns out they did. But yeah, that was a kind of a strange one. With season two, obviously they haven't filmed any of it. They're probably writing it um, now because they just weren't sure if they were going to get renewed or anything like that. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what direction they go. They have a lot of choices. I mean, they can kind of fully feature building a restaurant, renovating a restaurant and establishing a new one and what all goes into that construction and marketing and menu development and all that stuff. I mean, press potentially too as well with you know trying to get the word out or if they get a review how that kind of goes they kind of touched on that a little bit with sydney's kind of one-off dish uh, that kind of makes some some publications and stuff who knows i mean they can there's a lot of different things that they can go into they can go further into kind of addiction and mental health and stuff too as well you know hiring i think they could touch on staffing and inflation too as well started happening before i think the show aired but probably not when it was like filmed or anything 
they mentioned the COVID pandemic in one of the episodes. So like, it's definitely a show that's rooted in the real world, but they're bringing up current events and those sorts of political topics. So yeah, I think that would be very interesting to see how they work that in. And you can tell that with the the amount of consulting they've done with uh, with Christopher Storr's sister, who's a chef in LA, and they had Maddie Matheson on the show and all these other different chefs that are very much in the industry and understand the day-to-day struggles. So yeah, I would love to see those sorts of like back-end business problems brought it more into the second season. I think that'd be interesting to see. In a way, they have like a, feel like a responsibility to touch on those things, but I hope that they don't feel the pressure, I guess, like still make it, you know, what they want to make it, but don't feel like you have to be the voice for the entire industry and all these things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I did like that the show is mostly focused on the personal relationships that I think that makes for a much more interesting show because otherwise you can just watch Top Chef or whatever bar rescue kind of thing that will go into the the actual numbers. But yeah, just kind of sprinkling in here and there like they did with the they had like the one mention of like we had to do this to get through COVID was I thought just nice to kind of like ground it in the real world. Yeah. And another thing I think they did really well is they didn't throw in a bunch of guests where, I mean, like Joel McHale like pops up real quick. Yeah. There are a few cameos, but nothing like distracting. They didn't leverage the Chicago restaurant scene where it's like, let's, can we get Grant to like appear? Can we get, you know, Curtis Duffy to show, like, can we get all these big names in in the Chicago industry to like randomly pop up at, because there's a way that they could have done it where like it could have been at that birthday party. It would have been some famous Chicago chef, you know, hosting, you know, or something like that. And it was his kid's birthday party or, or whatever. And they, they could have done a lot of that stuff where, you know, almost like uh, Entourage and, and Billions kind of do that. And it, it gets very distracting, um, especially when it's leveraged so much in each individual episode. So I thought that was a good decision not to not to bring a lot of different famous faces, even if they were just, you know, within the industry into the show. Right. Yeah. I thought it was, they did such a good job of keeping it within the restaurant itself. Other than the one, the catering episode, pretty much every single episode takes place within the restaurant. And then you get a few cutaway scenes of like them going out to see vendors or the scene in Sydney's apartment. But I would say 90% of the show takes place in the kitchen. You don't, you barely even see the dining room of the restaurant. It's almost all on the line, which I thought was really, really cool. Yeah. They show the front too, or the the ordering counter and everything. But yeah, it's mostly in the kitchen, like you're saying. My two favorite things that like I kept coming back to, what my favorite note, I think, out of the whole show, and I've seen a lot of people like screenshotting and like really dissecting this was his uh, Carmi stack of cookbooks in his apartment. Um, I thought that was a really fun touch. There's a lot of Easter eggs in there. And I know every every chef I know has their stack of books that they go to. And most, of, I mean, that was exactly what my apartment looked like in Hong Kong with just a uh, no bookshelf, no, not a lot of furniture, just a stack of books on the floor. And they're definitely uh, some of my most prized possessions. I've, I've carried those from country to country that I think when I was moving from Vietnam to Hong Kong, half my luggage was cookbooks. So I thought that was cool to see like what books they included. And you can definitely tell um, sort of the inspiration and like the the consultants they had on to, to sneak some of those books in there. There's some fun ones. With acquiring cookbooks like that, you know, because I think some people will be like, well, why don't you just get a library card? And then I think others would probably be, you know, I've seen a lot of people started to either downsize their cookbook collection uh, on Instagram, different chefs looking to, you know, either get rid of uh, certain books and stuff that maybe they no longer find relevant or flip through so much that they kind of have memorized. But do you find a point where you kind of, you know, you're referencing a a cookbook heavily and then it kind of falls by the wayside, like you kind of almost dates itself in a way? 
I think so. I definitely go through phases where I've got a handful of cookbooks that I've been referencing for years, and I don't think I'll ever stop the ones that I go to for really basic recipes or ratios or things like that that I use all the time. Um, but then there are others where sometimes it's kind of trendy, where I'll I'll get a new book and I'll love it for a month and trying to cook as many things out of it and then kind of forget about it. Other chefs, other books that I just kind of go back to every now and then for the pictures. Like uh, one of my favorite cookbooks is the the Chef's Garden Cookbook, and that is not the easiest to cook out of for home cooks, but it's beautiful. It's I think it has some of the best food photography I've seen in a cookbook in a long time. So there are books like that too where. I'm probably not going to go through and actually cook any of those recipes, but just to kind of get inspiration and like get an idea of what I want something to look like or some ingredients that I'm not really familiar with. Yeah, it kind of goes 50-50 where you can like, actually, you can see behind me, this is the my stack of cookbooks that I keep in the kitchen with me that I cook from on a daily basis. So like The Joy of Cooking is another one that was on in the show and Carmi's stack of cookbooks that has everything. And that's one some like, I'll flip through that just to get a really basic idea of recipes. Same thing with uh, Ratio by Michael Rollman. Was another one that was in the show and that's one of my most used most dog-eared cookbooks so that's kind of like there are definitely books i go to on a weekly basis especially now in my personal chef job where i am coming up with a lot of different recipes um it's nice to have that stack that i can rely on to go through and just flip open a page and i know there's probably something on there that i can cook that would uh be crowd pleasing yeah from what i know about the cookbook industry too as well and I'm sure this won't come as a surprise to anybody uh, in the hospitality industry, but pretty much your first cookbook is like break even at best. It's kind of like you put all this work into it and it's basically the same profit margin as like a restaurant. You're really only going to start seeing like significant cash flow from you know your second, third, fourth cookbook that you kind of come out with. And it's kind of just a, a marketing vessel, you know? So that's why I think that you'll see a lot of people have one cookbook and then never do it again because it's just not worth the effort. Where celebrity chefs, it's different that, yeah, Mark Bittman can put out a new book every six months and people are going to buy it. Same with like Sean Brock. Like Sean Brock is another one that I have his cookbook behind me. Carmi had it in his. The South cookbook is beautiful, but that's, I think it's the second or third cookbook, whereas most chefs probably aren't going to put out more than one. Yeah. It's just, it's from my understanding, it's just too, way too much work um, for the amount of payoff and less tough now too, because it's, you know, obviously people that work in kitchens, they'll acquire cookbooks, but are people that cook from home, how many cookbooks are they? You know what I mean? Where I think you're probably like somebody who works in a kitchen probably has on average 25 cookbooks, but like the at-home chef, they probably have what, three, five? Yeah. Especially ones that they cook out of too. Like a lot of those celebrity chef cookbooks. Yeah. Like the I, Momofuku cookbook is another one that I love. Um, I think it's got great stories, great photography, but those recipes you just can't cook at home. They're like 24 hour processes, all these different specialty ingredients. Like you need a vacuum sealer and a sous vide machine. Like nobody has that in their home kitchen. So nobody's actually cooking those recipes, but it's still fun to like flip open and look through every now and then. I think like the one ramen recipe in there like makes some ridiculous, something like 10 gallons of ramen or something. <laughs> like it's something ridiculous. And you're like, even if I like pared this down, like I'm still going to have a freezer full of like ramen in here. Uh, even if I made this into like a more approachable portion size. So kind of get these different angles of it. But in the show, you also had a few food writing books as well, which I thought was cool. Um, I mean, definitely Kitchen Confidential is on there, obviously. But I thought it was interesting, too, that Medium Raw was in there, which is actually my favorite Bourdain book. Um, so he had both of those in the stack, which I thought was cool. And a lot of other there was a lot of chef memoirs. Um, it seemed to be very West Coast friendly, which is not surprising, given that a lot of the chef consultants are from 
the Bay Area. So like there were two Tartine books in that stack. I think there's another Andy Ricker book from his Pock Pock restaurant uh, on the West Coast. So yeah, I thought that was cool to see what sort of chefs they pulled. Yeah, it was a little interesting where, you know, you mentioned Tartine and they've had some PR issues um, with some of the stuff and kind of anti-unionizing and, and stuff like that too. So it's interesting when you find those like little tidbits in there and you kind of have to put it in context of your brain. Like this was probably filmed like a year and a half ago, you know, so maybe it was before anything happened. But like I mentioned, kind of when we started recording, you know, one of the thing pieces I saw was from Daniel Patterson who wrote something for, I don't know if it was like Esquire magazine or something. And I was like, that's probably the last person that should be writing about the show. <laughs> like, like I like I'm really surprised that anybody kind of let him author anything based on the controversy surrounding, you know, his restaurant group and trying to do all these different restaurants and essentially using people of ethnicity and POC other chefs as kind of this front for these restaurants that he wanted to open, but he never gave them proper ownership or had, you know, contracts or and you could find all this stuff. It's a quick Google and you'll read through it. But it's really like it's really it's really bad. I did think the fr- – because I, I read that article and I thought the framing of that one was kind of weird because his – and he touches on why he thinks the restaurants, the, his local concept didn't work. But yeah, it didn't work. So I don't know. Was, I thought it was a weird a person to reach out to. He partnered with – Roy Choi, right? The Well, no, no, but for that. But so the other stuff is he partnered with like four other chefs, Reams, which is the famous kind of Indian Mediterranean one and, um, in the Bay Area. He partnered with her, a couple other people – and basically, he was going to open up kind of all these different concepts with them as partners, but he only kind of leveraged their involvement for like marketing aspects and like never gave them kind of proper ownership of the actual business and like wouldn't put stuff in like contract terms and stuff. It's very like shady, predatory business practices almost kind of thing. And I mean, he wound up trying to sell Qua. He left and came back, you know, eventually and was trying to sell it. And I think there was some other issues potentially with the environment there too, as well as to like, people were like, nah, not touching that. So it's just really weird where you see some people get the opportunity to write or review shows and stuff like that. And it's just like, yeah, did you guys do your homework before letting that person uh, put this out there? And Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And the other thing I really loved about the show and like my favorite note was the, the focus on family meal, which was like a recurring thing in multiple episodes, which is definitely, that's the first question anyone asks when you walk into a kitchen is who's on family meal today. Um, it's a very important part of restaurant life. And it's, I think that's probably one of the things I missed the most is I was super lucky to come from restaurants where that was a big focus. Chapman's I think has some of the best family meals around, um, super talented chefs that are always putting a lot of effort into that, which I thought was really cool to see the the focus on the show that doesn't always get a lot of uh, attention in a lot of these kitchen shows. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think like the other show that was kind of before this was Sweet Bitter um, that only lasted for two seasons. It didn't, it was based on a book. It's okay. It's, it's more of just kind of like a, a show set in with the restaurant is kind of just where the setting is. It's not really a about the restaurant it's more about the personalities that kind of intertwine but there's just all these like different relationship dynamics that it doesn't really matter but that's kind of the focal point but you know they kind of touched on a few things here there it was with stars and it never wind up making it just because i think it's really tough to get anything on any of those networks but yeah otherwise like it's it's really hard to find any sort of scripted 
show about food or, or restaurants. I was thinking of like my favorite scripted shows. I love the movie Chef with uh, John Favreau. That's probably my favorite like chef movie. Um, and they did a show, not necessarily scripted, but kind of like a behind the scenes TV show for Netflix that I really, really enjoyed. Bob's Burgers is probably, it was fun to watch. Yeah, have it on the background. It's a nice light watch. Mm-hmm. Something like, yeah, it's short episodes. I'm guessing either they're done doing it or he's just too busy with. Yeah, he's got other stuff going on, but. Isn't he in control of like all the Star Wars TV shows for Disney Plus, I think? Yeah, he's involved in the MCU because he did Iron Man and like he's a busy guy. <laughs> I think he's like completely in charge of all that. So he's, yeah, he's pretty busy. I don't know if he uh, necessarily has a whole lot of time to cook in the kitchen right now. What else? Uh, Bob's Burgers is probably honestly my favorite show set in the kitchen, which I know is it's a cartoon, but I think it's so funny and so entertaining. And I love the the dynamics of the, the family restaurant in that show. I think that's a really, really, if you're talking shows about restaurants, that's that's in my top five for sure. Uh, and my other one, I don't know if you've seen Midnight Diner on Netflix. It's the show. I think the sh- it's entirely in Japanese with English subtitles. And it's it's set in a diner in Tokyo after midnight and it kind of like every episode focuses on a different client coming in and just like what happens in this diner after midnight in Tokyo but it's that's a really cool framing device um, and there's another Japanese one it's like Samurai Gourmet I think that is one of my favorite shows on Netflix um, again really simple premise of just old Japanese retired dude uh, who goes to different diners and has these like fantasies of being uh a samurai. It's an entertaining show. I really, really enjoy it. I highly recommend anyone that has Netflix to look it up. Again, super short, like 30-minute episodes, beautifully shot food scenes. And I think it's a, like a much different pace than a lot of the, the typical food media. And then I was uh, I also listened to this podcast called the FOH Pod. It's a really interesting service industry pod. Um, and they did an episode on the bear. And they pointed out that all of these shows about kitchens are always back of house that like where is the the front of house series about the bear that you don't really ever see much of the the waiters hosts waitresses side of things that that's all the drama typically tends to go to the the back of house which i thought was funny i would imagine the reason that is is because so much of front of house would be interacting with the customer essentially where there's a way you can do it i mean obviously you can have good customers bad customers difficult customers stuff like that but with the bear, I mean, they don't really have too much of a service element. Yeah, I do think it would be much more difficult to do. So I, I get why you don't see it as often, but I think it's it's fun to think about. Because another one of my favorite shows is Party Down, which is not necessarily, that's a catering show centering around a group of caterers in Los Angeles all trying to become actors and writers. It's Adam Scott's in it. Really, really funny show. Um, but yeah, that's like the only front of house show that I can think of is Party Down. There's a way to do it. But I think you have to really think through how you're going to do it if you're just going to focus on the front of the house. Just because you have to have all the front of the house characters be different in their own way, but also kind of intertwined. Then you also have this exterior character of different guests, different customers that you're going to constantly have to come through with each show too. So I think there's like a lot of balancing where, and if it's not done right, it's, it's probably going to be pretty bad. It'd be much harder to control, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my my guess. Um, but I'm sure somebody, depending on how long the the bear goes, you know, success-wise, I'm sure somebody will eventually be like, well, what if we do the other side or something? So Yeah, and then I think on the, the flip side of that, probably my least favorite 
food media is uh the movie burnt with bradley cooper that movie is uh not good not my favorite so like i know a lot of people hate that movie at least a lot of people in the industry what is what is the reason i know there's ridiculous like hollywood things in there like sending seeing himself to like shuck like a million oysters or whatever yeah which if you ever get a chance to ask bj chef bj about that um he he did the math and it's just it's physically impossible that's uh that scene makes absolutely no sense the the way they frame that but yeah if you, if you talk to bj lieberman again i'd ask him about the oysters and burnt because it's he's got a funny take on that yeah overall it's just so over the top and dramatic it's one of the least realistic kitchen movies i've ever seen all the characters are so overdone a lot of the the kitchen details don't really make any sense that most kitchens don't really function that way in terms of like the interaction between the staff the way they design their menus the way the kitchens are set up the whole thing about sous vide which i get that it's obviously going to be dated that they write the movie and then they have to shoot it and then they have to edit it and it comes out blah 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 but like at the time that the movie came out it was presented as this like groundbreaking thing where it was not at all. And it was definitely overutilized in the movie that the whole thing is like, he got these two Michelin stars because he knows he use a vacuum sealer. It was kind of strange to me. Yeah. I think it was just, they didn't seem to really do their homework much on that movie. Which is strange because I feel like that movie was strictly born out of the fact that Bradley Cooper before, you know, he was a big name did the no reservations TV series. Yeah, which I thought was really weird, but... You have to, like, track it down on YouTube if you want to watch it or whatever. But that movie felt like kind of like, hey, we tried to do this TV series. It didn't work. Can we do it in, like, a two-hour kind of movie form or whatever? But there's a lot of holes in that movie. I mean, the way they talk about Michelin stars is incorrect because it doesn't... They're like, oh, he's going for his third... It's like, well, the rest... The stars stay with the restaurant. They don't move with the chef. Like, that's not how that works. They also don't really do a good job of telling you where exactly they're located. Because it's like they reference like his time in France. But then he's like shucking oysters in New Orleans. And then goes to a hotel. I thought it was London, but that just could have been because like somebody had an accent. You know, it's tough to tell like where they are. So I think that one, you, you know, I think a lot of people in the industry dislike a lot of parts about that. And yeah, I mean, it's it definitely got overtly Hollywood touches, you know, with relationship drama in the kitchen and stuff like not to say that that stuff doesn't exist, but it was just kind of like, we get it. But like, what else is going on? Which again, like going back to the bear, I really like that they kind of, for the most part, they kind of got away from that trope of the, the angry shouting chef that throws things. Obviously, in the episode seven, the one shot where it all kind of goes to shit that Carmi lost his temper there, but I don't think like they don't really portray him as the the chef that Joel McHale portrays in those few cutaway scenes that they make a big point, and especially with Sydney too. Like a lot of the conversations between Carmi and Sydney focus on we want to change this culture that that's not healthy, it's not how anyone works well. That like this restaurant could be different, but then of course they show how difficult it is to make those changes. That you see Carmi slipping back into his old ways in that episode where he's shouting and throwing and just kind of being a not very nice person to all of his staff. And then the staff walks out. So that's, it's definitely something that happens. Yeah. Which is kind of surprising in a way that everybody walks out. I think that's kind of supposed to be reflective of kind of the, the new hospitality industry culture that is kind of across the border is a majority of the places now more so than, yeah, people flinging pots and pans uh, across the kitchen and stuff like that too, as well, where before, you know, people wouldn't have walked out where it's like, yeah, okay, this might be the only job I have. And it's like, I'm 
I'm making like 10 bucks an hour, but like, yeah, F this, I don't, I don't need this, you know? Just, so yeah, they do good job highlighting that too as well. Overall, I think it's, I think it's really well done. I think it's worth watching. Uh, some people refuse to watch it, which I find is odd uh, for whatever reason. If you have some time and you're looking for something to watch, I, I would highly recommend it to anybody who has an interest in food or has worked in the industry in, in some capacity. Yeah. And I think overall, it's just a really well done show. Like The acting's great. The The pace of the show is really well done. It's well shot. The music is fantastic. There's some great needle drops throughout the series. Yeah, I think it's a really well done show. Even if you don't, if you've never worked in a restaurant, I think it's still highly entertaining. If you have worked in a restaurant, it might be a little bit too close to home, but I think anyone can enjoy it. You don't have to be a chef to to enjoy the show. Anything you are hoping that they include in season two? You know, obviously, you know, if by some magic, somebody uh, from the Bear production staff listens to this and uh, wants to know what uh, we want them to put in season two, what would you want to see in there? Uh, more Marcus. I really, really liked his character. Um, I would love to see him kind of get involved in the way they build their team in the whatever the next iteration of the restaurant will be. And sort of the dynamics between Tina, who I thought was also a really funny character, Um it's become a running joke between me and my wife now that we'll just say yes, Jeff, instead of yes, chef to, to each other when we're at home and in the kitchen. So yeah, like I think the the inner lives of a lot of these chefs, I would love to see brought in and uh, kind of highlighted more in the next season. I think I would want to see kind of the dynamic of opening a new restaurant or a new concept and just that kind of fully fleshed out and how you have to deal with social media, you have to deal with different local publications you have to deal with yelp criticism which i despise yelp uh for so many reasons but you have to deal with all these different things when you're trying to navigate just opening something that you want to open that you believe in and there's all these different kind of things that are out there that are trying to tear it down while you're trying to like bring it up so i'm hoping they they kind of touch on a lot of that stuff because it's a really challenging process to navigate to building everything out, finding people, finding just construction people that can do the job, hiring staff. I mean, maybe they don't have to hire staff for, for this concept. They can just kind of rebrand it, but all that stuff. Um, it's all time consuming and can be just life consuming too, if, if you let it happen. So, Yeah. I do have one question for you before we finish up though. One of my favorite pieces of criticism was Helen Rosner's piece in The New Yorker. And she has a line about how She's from Chicago, obviously, and the these like beef restaurants are very special to her. And she has a line about how the these restaurants have a smell to them that's so unique that no other place in the world smells like these restaurants. And that's something that like definitely struck me that like I know of those like Columbus doesn't have beef restaurants, but like we've got a ton of like hot dog places. And I think of like Village Coney in German Village is definitely like one of those places to me that like when you walk in, it has such a unique smell and like feel to it that you have those like neighborhood staples and that's what like sydney mentions that she used to go there with her dad and that's why she wants to work there after all of her mission star experience so for me village coney and german village is that place in columbus do you have one of those places that's like your go-to kind of run down but it's always delicious and it's just like a, a comforting like as soon as you walk in the door the sights the sounds the smells that like really hit you like oh yeah i'm i'm home i almost want to say the north market reason for that is just because it feels very old city like you get the feeling that you kind of are you can make it in your head like oh you are in boston and in a food market because it's, it's very similar it's it's not clean it's not 
I mean, it's clean, like, don't get me wrong, but like, it's not brand new. You know what I mean? Like you get kind of, you know, that, or even, you know, it's very similar to the market up in Cleveland too, as well. So you kind of get that universal, like North America city feel where most big cities, like they have a food market like that, where there are some that are new and they're spacious. And those don't get me wrong. Those are super nice. That's the one thing I do wish that bridge park would have done differently is I wish they would have made it bigger it's a little narrow it's nice that it's new but i wish they would have made it bigger that's a good one i like that because I, I definitely north market's one of those places in columbus for me that like reminds me so much of being home that's i've got a lot of good memories from there and it, you're right it does have such a unique smell as soon as you walk in you're like oh yeah i'm i'm in north market there's nowhere else i could be yeah it's definitely one of the few places i think columbus that identifiable <sighs> as a columbus thing we just don't have like the, the brick buildings like cincinnati and stuff like that so it's newer, but there's not like this grand architecture style or anything that's been around. So no, it's definitely a very dynamic city. You don't have that like long standing tradition the same way you do in Cincinnati and Cleveland. So you lose kind of some aspects of, I guess, generational character in a way where you see like old photos. And it's like there used to be this giant mall downtown and now it's the Columbus Commons. And it's like, which is like great. Like we don't need a giant Lazarus Mall, you know, downtown or whatever. But so much of Columbus is kind of being slowly redone where you don't have a whole lot of history from, yeah, you have the Lebec Tower and everything, but like you don't have buildings like this building's been around for, you know, a hundred years and it's gone. It was this and then it was home to this and this and this and that. We have a lot of newer buildings or older buildings that, that are being rehabbed, but never really had much character. So it's kind of one of those things where it's finding its way, but there's not that. Like, oh, yeah, this part. Because, I mean, just like the freeways alone, they're redone and, and changed around and stuff like that. And streets are being redone. So it's it's hard to kind of have that connection back to, you know, 30 years ago, down this street was this, where it's like now that street doesn't exist there anymore. Cause, so, yeah, I, I would say probably the North Market. I think the Bear Season 2 is supposed to come out sometime, uh, I would imagine, next year. Probably roughly around the same time. So probably early spring first week of june this one came out so yeah probably late spring early summer yeah otherwise there's not a whole lot uh of food media out there a few things that you you mentioned um i think a couple of potential things in the works but this is kind of it but they do a really good job so you know aside from your documentaries and your reality tv competition this is kind of what's out there and and they did a good job so excited to see what happens with season two and come back and do this again yeah yeah for sure you are the first three-time guest on the podcast, so you're you're leading uh, that ranking there. A few others that have been on uh, twice, and then uh, obviously a majority that have been on uh, once. So cool to see uh, everything progressing with the tiny spoon there. Yeah, yeah, going well. This is awesome. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, always great to talk. Enjoy New York. I'm jealous that you're in New York. Find cool stuff to eat. Keep posting pictures. Definitely. If you ever come through, uh, let me know. Again, a big thanks to Matt for taking some time out of his morning and jumping on a call and chatting about the bear uh, with me there and kind of breaking things down. So again, you can look forward to season two. It has been renewed. Uh, I would imagine season two will probably come out sometime in spring of 2023. So I would imagine sometime between March and May, I would think. So pretty much a similar 
release timeline too as well as to the first season so you can follow matt on instagram at pork stories uh, also at tiny spoon chef you can follow us on instagram too as well at spoon mob twitter facebook tiktok we're on all that stuff it's either spoon mob or spoon mob one but mainly we use the instagram account um just because i enjoy um, photos more so than just text and links and stuff like that so you can check out the website too spoonmom.com we got different profile pages for everybody who's been on the podcast you know any updates that happen after they've been on the podcast they open a new restaurant they win an award whatever we put that in kind of a, a little written description uh, kind of timeline up there too as well so there's always kind of new things happening with everybody and we just follow along and keep those updated until they come back on the podcast and then we'll chat about them and uh, take that part off because it'll be encapsulated in the latest episode that they're on but every page has a link uh, to the episode that they were in but you can find all the episodes in the podcast feed just go on any platform any podcast platform search spoon mob we're on there um, click the follow subscribe button all the new episodes will get downloaded straight into your player uh new episodes come out on thursdays 1 a.m sometimes we drop stuff randomly during the week little you know mini updates with people um, as they return to the podcast and you know have moved or changed restaurants or opened a new restaurant you know that they want to talk about so we've done a handful of those already and we got a few more uh that we're working on too as well with some some people that have been on previously um and you know back at the beginning and returning because they've you know been doing cool things that you know we want we want to give them the chance to talk about just because we want to be able to support them as much as we can and some people are just out of the state so you know we can't exactly just uh just roll into the restaurant and try it ourselves so um it'll take us a little bit longer to get there so felt like it was a good way to help support them um as much as we can as along with resharing instagram posts and and stuff like that for you guys so you're aware of what's going on with some of these places that we really love because we want them to stay in business. We love eating there. We love the people that work there. Great experiences. So these are all the places that you know we'd recommend you try if you haven't. But uh, that is it for this week. Like I said, next week we'll be returning with an uh, all-new interview, all-new guest. Uh, super excited about it too as well. Uh, it's a part of the country that we really haven't had too many people on. I think maybe one person so far kind of from the area, at least from the state. So it'll be good good episode, informative, different kind of market that we haven't uh, touched on too as well and and uh, an awesome restaurant too as well. So that is it for this week. Thank you for all your support, continued listenership. Uh, appreciate everybody. Continue to help spread the word and we will talk to you guys next Thursday.